Welcome to Incredible Healthcare Leaders, a podcast where we interview the healthcare industry's key players on topics like current events, their successes, and their failures. I'm your host, Iman Abouzaid. I'm the CEO of Incredible Health, the fastest growing career marketplace for healthcare workers in the US, and the only marketplace technology that helps hospitals and health systems hire permanent, experienced nurses in 20 days or less. Our guest today is Barry Friedman, the longest serving health system CEO in the Philadelphia region. He was CEO of Albert Einstein, now known as the Einstein Healthcare Network from 2003 through 2020, and he's now an advisor on special projects. It sounds like they're not letting you fully, fully retire. <laughs> that, that's true. Barry oversaw the expansion of Moss Rehab, a rehabilitation hospital. He built Einstein Medical Center Montgomery, which at the time was the first newly constructed hospital in Pennsylvania in more than a decade, and uh, recently celebrated Einstein's 150th anniversary as a system, which included the largest fundraising campaign in the organization's history. You've been busy. <laughs> um, indeed. All right, fantastic. So, Barry, you've had a storied career, lots of success. Uh, we'd love to start with where where this all started. What was your first job? My first job in healthcare uh, came after graduate school. I, I had decided after college, after toiling for a year or two with very mundane jobs, to go back and get an MBA. Uh, I wanted to get an MBA with a focus on on healthcare because I wasn't sure healthcare was where I wanted to end up, but I needed an escape valve. I needed to hedge, so an MBA would have given me an opportunity if I didn't like healthcare. My first job was with a consulting firm, and that was purposeful. I had thought that uh, working for a consulting firm, I would get exposed to many different hospitals instead of just one hospital, and I didn't want to be pigeonholed like that. I thought I could get a broader knowledge, see different ways hospitals approach the same issues, and that broader context would be valuable. I also thought it would give me exposure to more contacts and networking in the field, which I thought would be important for future jobs. So I started in consulting, and one of the consulting firms I was with was contracted by Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City to do a major turnaround. Their financial performance um, was problematic, and uh, the consulting firm came in to assist them in a, in, in a financial turnaround by doing performance improvement, uh, process change, um, benchmarking. And I ended up running that engagement, which gave me the opportunity to develop a personal relationship with the president and CEO of the Mount Sinai Hospital. As any fortunate mentee will tell you, having a mentor that gives you opportunities is a lucky thing to happen. And it was for me because he offered me a job with an executive position at Mount Sinai Hospital. And within five years, I was the chief operating officer. And when he left, which was about seven years after I started at Mount Sinai, I was in a position that was uh, fortunate. I was, I was lucky to be in the right place, the right time. I obviously had done some good things for the hospital. And I was offered the opportunity to actually run the hospital. Now, Mount Sinai at that time uh, was going through some change and becoming a truly integrated medical center. So there was a dean running the School of Medicine. I was running the hospital, and we both reported into 
kind of a university structure, except it wasn't a university. It was the medical center. And I reported into an MD CEO. Uh, my title was eventually changed to president and CEO of Mount Sinai Hospital. And after a, a unsuccessful merger with NYU, yeah. where I served uh, actually as the interim president and CEO of Mount Sinai NYU Health. After that unsuccessful merger, I looked for another position and ended up uh, becoming the president and CEO of the Einstein Healthcare Network in Philadelphia, where, as you uh, pointed out, I served uh, for 18 years in that role. And after 49 years in healthcare, I decided to hang up my spikes, hang up my uniform, and I'm still attempting to fully retire, not quite there yet, uh, but working on that, uh, maybe next year. But, but I'm committed for at least this year. All right, fantastic. Let's go back to the beginning for a moment. You mentioned it was, this was your first, uh, the consulting firm was the first job in healthcare. What was like your first job like, like in life, right? Were you like <laughs> serving ice cream, delivering papers? Like what, where did this all really all start? You're very good. You're um, right on, on, on the money. My first job was um, delivering newspapers at 6.30 in the morning in the neighborhood. Um, I was very fortunate to have a supportive mother. On rainy days, she would drive me, and so I wouldn't have to ride my bicycle. Uh, God bless her. But that was my, my first job. I think my second job was packing groceries at a supermarket. I remember doing that to earn enough money so that I would be able to take a plane ride, which I did my senior year of high school, down to Florida, where you are now, uh, to Miami to play golf with a bunch of uh, high school buddies. But uh, packing groceries at the supermarket and, and restocking uh, inventory on the shelves. Um, so those, those were my, my two most basic jobs. Things got better after that. Right. <laughs> we always, we ask that question often because, you know, you see, oh, I've been a CEO for 18 years of a giant health system, but like it all started with like delivering newspapers, right? <laughs> well, I'll tell you the two jobs I had in college to help me pay through college. Um, one was washing pots and pans. I liked that better than being a server to other students, which I for some reason, found a little demeaning. So I could hide in the back of the kitchen and just wash pots and pans. And, and that was good. But the best job I probably ever had, where everybody wanted to see me and loved my showing up, was I was the beer delivery guy for Budweiser Beer um, in Madison, Wisconsin. And, and let me tell you, they like their beer in Madison. And every Friday night and Saturday when I would roll those kegs of beer in, I was greeted with big smiles. All right, you're very, you're very popular on campus. Indeed. Fantastic. You, you mentioned um, the job in healthcare consulting. I'm curious, just in general, what what sparked the interest in healthcare, or what, or what, what, what motivated you to commit to healthcare at that at that point? Well, it, it's actually interesting. I, I, and one of the jobs I had before I went back to graduate school um, was uh, selling life insurance, and I was working with a, an attorney who was incorporating physicians and setting up PCs for them. And when they did that, they had to change their insurance package. So it, it meant that I, I would meet physicians at the hospital. I would meet the surgeons between cases. I would meet the internists, uh, you know, between office visits. 
and I had some downtime and I started to explore what healthcare was like. And I decided to meet with administrators of hospitals. I concluded that healthcare was changing. It was going to become big business. And it served two purposes for me to be interested. One, doing something good and feeling that I wasn't just producing widgets, that I was doing something that I thought was meaningful for society. And two, might be a good career opportunity. And and I decided that the administrators at that time that I had met, which were a lot in the New York area, had kind of social service backgrounds. And if I was correct, if if everything I was reading was correct, that healthcare was going to go through tremendous growth and tremendous transformation and had to be more disciplined in its business practice than going into something that would be both a, a opportunity for a career that would be business-oriented, but still producing real value for society seemed to me to be a nice combination of what I would like to do and how I would spend my time and get meaning out of life. And it was one of the few times in my life that actually my research turned out to be entirely correct and and it led to 49 years in healthcare. Got it. Okay. So fast forward, uh, you leave Mount Sinai you're now the CEO of Albert Einstein, which eventually becomes known as the Einstein Healthcare Network. And you had you probably had a number of priorities when you first joined Albert Einstein, and one of which was upgrading the Moss Rehab Facility, which you accomplished very, very quickly. What what was going on at the time? Why was that even a priority? And, and how did you find new facilities for Moss Rehab? Like, how did you do that? The reason I was very interested in rehab medicine was personal. My wife had gone through a paralysis and and was hospitalized in a rehab hospital in New York City for three months and then had to do rehab for a couple of years. So I I had some personal interest in in rehabilitation, but um, the reality was at Einstein, where they were losing, they were running about a negative 4% operating margin. So my, my first priority was to turn around financially the performance of Einstein. And what I discovered was rehab, Moss Rehab was profitable uh, for Einstein, but it was housed in a building that was beyond ancient. There were four patients in each room. There weren't bathrooms. Um, the facility was more than 75 years old. One of the stories here is is about a fire sale that occurred. And the reason we refer to it as a fire sale is because I was in my first month here at Einstein, and I was in a building waiting for my condo to close. And the building I was staying in the fire alarm went off at 2.30 in the morning and uh, I trucked down you know, 14 flights of stairs and I bumped into a colleague that I hadn't seen in a while who had just started a job the prior month and he was working for Tenant, big national chain. And, and we were commiserating over what we were both doing in Philadelphia because neither of us came. And, and he told me that his, his important priority was selling, divesting of, of a bunch of the tenant facilities. And that was of great interest to me because we needed to do something for Moss. And here was an opportunity to buy a facility in a suburban location and to um, relocate it outside of the inner city location, which meant I could draw a commercial population. 
As it turned out, that facility was 100,000 square feet more than a facility that we were looking at building on campus. So it was going to be more costly to build. It was going to be still in a inner city neighborhood as opposed to a suburban neighborhood, which meant I wouldn't get the commercial population. And it was going to be um, more space. Before the fire department let us go back upstairs, I had concluded this was a transaction that I had to enter into. And in, in fact, we, we consummated the deal for $14 million less than it would have cost me to build the new facility, plus all the other benefits. And then it became, how do we expand and uh, market the heck out of, of Moss Rehab, which enjoyed a, a reputation of being in the top 20 in the United States. It's now in the top 10 for the last 10 of 11 years, and it's the top ranked uh, rehabilitation hospital in Pennsylvania for the last 12 or 14 years. It turned out to be a very, very good strategic decision, one that helped us financially, one that helped us reputationally, and one that has allowed us to grow Moss into the uh, largest rehabilitation provider in all of Pennsylvania. Wow. Okay. Amazing. Another one of your goals was to foster a we, not me culture. Can you tell us what does that mean? What does we, not me mean uh, for you and for Einstein? So coming from New York in an environment, not only at Mount Sinai, um, but at the other academic medical centers and more broadly, it was a very, very, uh, always what was in it for me, always me, me, me. And I really believed that a hospital health system needed to be we, 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 which meant that we had to do what was good for the collective, not uh, for the individual. As such, one of my first objectives was to try and introduce a change to the culture here to get away from a me and and be more we and family-oriented. That meant us all embracing the same mission, the same annual performance goals, the same long-term strategic goals, but that meant inclusiveness and and not doing it uh, from the IV tower. So I specifically met with our clinical chairs, uh, our chairs of all our our departments, and started to involve them. And the first thing I promised them was I would never make a decision. I would never allow the institution to make a decision where they weren't informed about it, where their views weren't invited, where we didn't listen. But listening to them didn't mean doing what they they (laughs) said. It meant factoring in and making sure I understood how this would impact them, what their sensitivities were, what their concerns were. But that ultimate responsibility still would rest with the board of trustees and the CEO to make the decisions. But we wanted to be informed uh, about those decisions and the implications to the, the medical staff. And for that matter, also my executive team, my, my cabinet, if you will, of the senior executives. I believe that we had to introduce transparency, that we had to have openness, that we had to have collaboration and collegiality and inclusiveness. We had to have partnership. And that would lead to creating a culture of we, uh, a sense of family, 
a sense of everybody aboard um, in the same direction, even if there were occasional decisions that didn't completely coincide with the interests of the medical staff. CEOs, both, both you and I, like we love talking about culture and its importance. And it's one thing to talk about it. It's a whole other thing to implement it, right? So tactically, how did you change the culture at Einstein? So you, you mentioned strategic goals. You mentioned uh, meeting with the, the different chairs and saying that they're going to be, their, vision, their opinions will be incorporated or considered. You mentioned your executive team. Was there anything else that you tactically did to implement this we, not me culture? You know, when we decided to create a new mission statement, when we tried to, um, when we created annual goals, when we created um, strategic goals, this was done through processes that uh, invited active participation of the leadership, whether it was clinical or administrative. administrative. So, you know, nothing was done in a vacuum. Uh, and everything was done with a transparency, but there were a lot of meetings. I think the other thing that I did that I have uh, learned is very different than what was done at Einstein previously, or for that matter, at a lot of institutions. As the CEO, I believed in cultivating social interaction with the leadership teams, both clinically and administratively. I would have several dinners a year as a group. Uh, I would have dinners individually. Uh, I would go out and golf uh, with with <laughs> with people, which was a good excuse for spending a half a day away from the office. I would have team events where I would take the leadership, the the thirty leaders, and and put them into group teams. You know, one such example was to do a treasure hunt, but they had to decipher the clues that I wrote up about where in town and between our main dish at dinner and dessert, I had limousines waiting downstairs to take five members, six members uh, of a team. And, and they had to work together to decipher the clues and then go and get proof of where they were in this in, in this mystery event. And, and activities like that uh, forged a relationship. Um, it, it created a, a bond amongst people. It created a closeness. It created a, a personal level where people under new spouses and children uh, of other members, and and it just created this sense of of family, um, which to to this day is an, a very important attribute of of Einstein. You know, it sounds like you really made a point to get feedback from from all levels at Einstein. And so this wasn't just the activities you described. It wasn't just restricted to your leaders. It was... No, actually, uh, I instituted um, probably the first four or five years I was here, I would have luncheons with employees. And I I would select uh, generally eight employees randomly that my HR department would would choose um, from all departments within the organization to come and sit with me at lunch. And, you know, and the, the one rule was it was the, it was the Vegas rule. Uh, what went on here stayed here, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it was an opportunity for them to open up and tell me quite candidly um, what they liked and more importantly, what wasn't good at Einstein and what concerns they had and what issues that became very popular. Uh, amongst the employees to have that 
opportunity to sit with the CEO and, and really open up about what changes we can make that, that would make life better here. Are you able to, can you share any um, juicy tidbits or surprising, <laughs> surprising things that you heard in these, in any of these closed door sessions, whether it was with your employees or your leaders? I, I think they were, they were fairly standard. Okay. Uh, no, no, there was there was caution on their parts because they didn't know could they really trust this this new guy or not. Over time, I, I think because the word got out, uh, they did seem to be more trusting and and therefore more open. But it was it was fairly standard. It, it was about equipment. It was about supplies. It was about repairs that needed to be made. It was about investment in the people. It was about managers. Yep. <laughs> uh, so it was the standard um, commentary, but I think they felt uh, that they now had voice, which they hadn't previously had, and I, and I think that was an important change. So one of the projects, one of your special projects that you're staying on to advise is is the merger with Jefferson with Jefferson Health. Initially, what made you interested in merging with that with that health system? So Einstein consists of two suburban hospitals, a rehab hospital, and an academic medical center that is located in uh, North Philadelphia in a, in a tough neighborhood uh, and a neighborhood of poverty. The academic medical center ac- accounts for 70% of revenues. It accounts for more in expenses, but it accounts for 70% of revenues. And we knew that we didn't have the scale to achieve the synergies that would allow us to sustain the mission, both in service to the community as well as academics, unless we became part of a larger organization, whether we would be in control or whether the other organization we merged with would be in control. I think the objectives for Einstein was one, to sustain the mission of service to our all of our communities, but particularly the vulnerable community. Because when Einstein was established in 1866, one of the things our organization is most proud of is that at that time, even though it was founded as a, a Jewish organization to to serve veterans of the Civil War who were returning. And, and if they were Jewish, they couldn't get health care anywhere. And, and it wasn't that that was anti-Semitic or racist. It was just a different time, a different era, where healthcare organizations were started to serve the communities in which they were located. What Einstein did, though, was to say that they were going to care for all people, and particularly for Blacks who were leaving the South and leaving slavery and coming North and didn't have means, uh, Einstein would have their doors open to treat vulnerable populations. So continuing that mission was our our first objective. I, I think we wanted to enhance our research and teaching and academics. Uh, we also wanted to improve our operating performance through synergies, and that was where scale came in. Um, We wanted to get access to capital because we didn't have the strongest balance sheet. And we needed to position for our future and for population health and the the longer term. So those were the objectives that Einstein had. I personally talked to 16 different health systems, both in the city, in the state, 
and in neighboring states. And Jefferson, um, their objectives were so well matched uh, for us. They had a commitment to serving uh, vulnerable populations. They had a very strong commitment to education and and they had a school their own medical school and and they had students and they they and and we were other than Jefferson Hospital we were their largest academic partner now we have more than 600 residents ourselves um, we have more than 600 employed faculty members. So we had an infrastructure for teaching that was very attractive, particularly as Jefferson was looking to increase their students. And they didn't want to send their medical students out of town because that's very inconvenient. So our educational platform was very attractive to them. They also loved the fact that uh, we had a suburban hospital, the first new hospital built in Pennsylvania in this millennium, that needed to expand three times already because um, demand was outstripping uh, supply. And uh, that represented growth opportunities uh, for them. They loved the fact that we had Moss Rehab, which was the best reputationally and and biggest and and profitable. And we also had a 25% ownership in a provider-based Medicaid, Medicare managed care plan, which Jefferson also had 25% as a consequence, as a result of their acquiring uh, and having ARIA merge in. So uh, with ARIA 25% and our 25%, they were now at 50%. And if they could buy out other members' interests, they would be able to fulfill their goal of creating an integrated delivery system, which was not only uh, a large provider-based organization, but its own insurance platform for Medicaid and Medicare, um, and maybe one day commercial. And so getting this merger approved was not straightforward at all. <laughs> to the extent you can share, what were the challenges or oppositions to the, to this merger that you and your team had to overcome? Well, internally, it was um, pretty easy for both organizations to get support of the medical staff and support of the board of trustees. I mean, easy, you know. Dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of meetings to educate people, to eliminate their fears of merging with another organization, uh, making sure that they knew that this would present growth opportunities, not contraction opportunities. So that took uh, scores and scores of meetings. But the the real challenge was locally. Uh, you know, Iman, because you went to school at in Philadelphia at Wharton, that it's a very competitive landscape for healthcare organizations. And there's a dominant insurer, IBC, which has 67% market share in the area. And they were not supportive of Einstein and Jefferson merging, um, nor were some of the uh, local institutions, which felt that this combination would have a tremendous market presence and scale second to none in the Southeast uh, Pennsylvania region. Uh, And that caused some concerns. And, And they voiced those concerns to the FTC and the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, who decided to Uh, sue us to block 
the merger. So this merger is three years in the making. It is scheduled now to close October 1st because Einstein and Jefferson prevailed in the courts. Um, we went to um, the district court. We went to the district court here in Philadelphia uh, to plead our case. And the judge in a very, very strong ruling supported the merger, found the FTC and the AG's analysis to be flawed um, because it was too narrow in defining the market. As an example, they excluded the University of Pennsylvania, which, as you know, sits <laughs> yeah. between Jefferson and Einstein. Yeah. And, and the fact that they excluded them from their analysis of market was confounding, if not dumbfounding, to the judge. Um, and when they looked at rehabilitation medicine, they only looked at IRFs. They didn't look at skilled nursing facilities, even though if you read the seminal report by the CMS, nursing facilities handle 40% of the rehabilitation patients upon discharge from inpatient facilities. And IRFs only handle 20%. So the fact that they excluded that from their, their market, uh, the judge found to be too narrow, too limiting. And he wrote such a strong opinion that both the AG and the FTC decided not to pursue this at the circuit court level, which they could have, because the opinion was so strongly worded in favor of the Einstein-Jefferson merger. Got it. And it took three years to overcome these some of these challenges that well, were happening it took externally. Three years from start to October first. So I, I include that in the timetable. But a lot of that time, some of those delays were a consequence of the pandemic, because the court decided it didn't want to hear and hold uh, a trial uh, during that. So so some of it was was a consequence of the environment. Some of it was just a, a, a consequence of the nature of the process. You know, first you spend time, lots of time, six, nine months trying to convince the FTC and the AG. And then when they first decide that they're not going to support it, then you go into this uh, legal channel. And, and of course, just coming to all the business terms uh, with Jefferson, from the time we signed a letter of intent until actually getting a definitive agreement, it was time consuming as well. So you've been um, incredibly successful. And so I'd like to ask you a question, not about success, but about failure. What is your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? You know, it's probably hard to identify my greatest failure because anybody who's in this field uh, for 49 years and then is in a leadership position for, you know, 35 years isn't honest if they don't cite that they had failures. So I, I had failures. I guess I would probably uh, talk about two. Um, one being uh, Mount Sinai NYU Health. So as the architect, as, as the person who developed the relationship with the NYU hospital executive, as the person who wrote the white paper on the benefits, um, which I still stand by to this day, were enormous and valuable and, and would have been very valuable to both organizations. 
Um, the fact that uh, we had to unwind that merger because at the end of the day, the cultures did not mesh at the board level, at the medical staff level. Even though we, we went through tremendous exercise and, and, and we did merge for a number of years, the fact that we had to unwind it was a major disappointment to me. It also was the cause of my relocation. So, you know, it was it was personally hurtful on on as well as organizationally. There was one other project that I thought would have been the best thing that could have been done for children in New York City and New York State, and that was to create a children's hospital that would have been the consequence of the four academic medical centers in New York City, Columbia, uh, New York Hospital, NYU, and Mount Sinai, coming together to create a children's hospital that would have embraced the teachings of those four academic medical centers. And to this day, I still believe that that would have been uh, the best solution for healthcare for children in New York but because of competitive uh, perspectives, because of cultural perspectives, we just couldn't bring that to fruition. I had the support of Mount Sinai, I had support of NYU, but that was because we were um, a combined entity at that point. I just, I, I just couldn't get the other two, even after uh, multiple, multiple discussions with the CEOs and the chairs of pediatrics at the respective institutions. Those two things to this day uh, represent uh, what I consider to be my greatest failures. Gosh, those tough, tough New Yorkers. Um, <laughs> what, what were some of the key things that you learned from those, those two experiences? Well, I, I think I learned that no matter how correct the analysis is of the benefits to be achieved for the population you serve and for the organizations themselves. If you can't get the cultures of those organizations to mesh, if you can't get the players to be aligned, individuals could throw monkey wrenches uh, into the wheels and, and stop all motion. You really have to invest, and as much as we invested and as much as we thought we understood about all of this, what you learn is is you can't ever do enough in regard to getting the individuals to align with the we and the benefit of the whole versus the me. And creating that culture of we allows you to do that. But if you live in a culture of me, 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 there are too many opportunities for veto of what's in the best interest of the community. And when you look back on, on you know, the last 40, 50 years, what is the, what's the moment of kindness or generosity that stands out to you? Like, what's the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Oh, there have been a lot of kind things. Um, that have have occurred. Most recently, upon my retirement, um, an organization I've been on the board of, uh, which is America's Essential Hospitals, 
which represents the safety net hospitals across the United States and, and which I'm very attached to and I believe strongly in. Um, the Einstein Board of Trustees decided to create up a leadership lecture series in my honor uh, at that organization. And, and I thought that was uh, uh, a great kindness. Uh, I, I thought um, board members, both at Mount Sinai in New York and here at Einstein in Philadelphia, embraced me and treated me not just as the country club manager, if you will, yeah. um, but as a person beyond just uh, somebody that was working for them. Some of the individual acts of kindness by employees, whether it's letters they wrote to me about how I changed their lives and impacted their lives. Uh, I have a book uh, of these letters that every six months I go back and read because it's so uplifting and it makes me feel as though my contributions changed lives is probably the most meaningful of, of all the things in terms of kind gestures that, that I've had. And, and something simple enough that, you know, people could just write a note, write a letter, but, but really has meaningfulness to it. All right. That, that was it. Thank you so much for your time today, Barry. Really appreciate you joining us on this podcast. Well, my pleasure. Thank you, uh, uh, for taking the time to to ask me those questions. It's it, it's it's nice to be able to recount things that have occurred over the five decades. Yep, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Incredible Healthcare Leaders. If you enjoyed the show, share the podcast with a friend and tweet at Join Incredible to let us know. We may give you a shout out on an upcoming episode. Remember to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Incredible Healthcare Leaders is produced by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Our theme music is from Purple Planet Music. I'm Imana Buzaid. See you next time.